Now, my text this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 62 and in the verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Now, I've entitled this message that the Lord gave me on Thursday. This is a new message. I'm not preaching an old message. I just want to emphasize that. This is something I've never preached on before. The Lord gave it to me on Thursday morning in prayer. And I've entitled the message, The Power of a Practical Prophecy. You see, these words were spoken by Isaiah the prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. 700 years before the birth and the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah the prophet is known as the evangelical prophet. His entire prophetic ministry is like a miniature Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And it's divided into two parts. 39 in one part, 27 in the other. It does not correspond to our English Bible Uh, One Bible and two Testaments. The Old Testament is 39 books and the New Testament 27 books. Now here in Isaiah chapter 62, Isaiah the prophet is given a prophecy about the great city of Jerusalem. Now that's important that you understand that. And he's talking about a time when Jerusalem will be sought out when Jerusalem will be known as a city not forsaken, as a city no more termed forsaken. Neither shall the land be known as desolate. You see, one day the people who belong to that city will hear a call. And the call will be, go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Now these words, I believe, and I'm conscious that there's other ministers here who may have a different opinion, but I believe that these words have a literal historical fulfillment. I want you to think with me of the rise of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. You've got to think about the Babylonian Empire. And it was one of the great Gentile empires that was to rise up and dominate the world. And of course, um, the Babylonian Empire led to what we call the Babylonian captivity. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar attacked and invaded Judah three times, 606 BC to 586 BC. In the last attack, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The walls were broken down. Its gates were burned with fire. Literally thousands upon thousands of people were enslaved and taken captive to Babylon. And you've got to think about the prophet Ezekiel. You've got to think about the prophet Daniel. And many others were there. Nehemiah, whenever he heard news of this great city, said this, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem also was broken down and the gates thereof were burned 
with fire. Now at the end of the Babylonian captivity, which lasted, by the way, 70 years, another leading world empire was to take over. And that empire, the second great Gentile world power, became known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And one of the kings of that Medo-Persian Empire was a king known as Cyrus. Another was Darius the Mede. Another was Artaxerxes. Well, did you know that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about King Cyrus? Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 44 and in the verse 28. He says this, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem. Thou shalt be built. And to the temple. Thy foundation shall be laid. He also says in Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Whose right hand I have holden. To subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings. To open before him the two leave gates. And the gates shall not be shut. You see, at least 200 years before King Cyrus was born, one of the great prophecies that was predicted about King Cyrus, not only a prophecy about his name, and that's great, but also that he would order a decree that would allow the captive Israelites to go free from Babylon and return to their own land. Now, isn't that amazing? And connected to this decree, that they would return and rebuild not only Jerusalem, but rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 23. And you could also read uh, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and Ezra chapter 5, 13. I'm not going to turn to all them scriptures this morning for time, but that is amazing. Let's ask the question, young people, who can predict history in advance? Who can predict the future? Who can predict your future if you're 18, or maybe 28, or maybe you're 38? And you're wondering, what will life be like when I'm 68? Who can predict that? Well, well, here's the answer. God can. Imagine 200 years before he was born, naming a king, King Cyrus. And then telling us what this king will do in the first year of his office. And then giving us the very words that he will use. 200 years before his birth. You see, only God can write history in advance. Isn't it tremendous that we can trust our Bible? Here's a prophecy about the great city of Jerusalem. And and this prophecy is being unfolded. And, and, And here in God's precious word, now toward the end of that 70 year of captivity, in the first year of King Cyrus' reign, he's going to say to the Israelites living in Babylon, which is a reference to Jerusalem, Go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Now that's, I believe, a literal historical fulfillment of this particular prophecy. 
But like all scripture, scripture has a spiritual and practical application. And you see, I, when I read this verse, having prayed on Thursday morning, Lord, I'm going to call rain to preach. Give me a word from thyself. See, it would have been easy to preach an old sermon, wouldn't it? The new uh, year's sermon I preached in, Col- in, in Carrie Duff or, or something else. But I was seeking the Lord and the word gates come into my mind. And because the word gates came into my mind, then when I, I googled it in Bible Gateway, this scripture, as I scanned through the various scriptures, just seemed to jump out of the page. And it was as if it said, preach on me. Because the moment I read the text, and I wasn't thinking at that time of a literal historical fulfillment of the text, I saw in this text a marvelous picture of the Christian life. It has a spiritual and practical application this morning. And that's why I want to view it. That's why I've entitled it the power of a practical prophecy. Now there's three things here. One, there's a call that is to be obeyed. Notice the words here. Go through, go through the gates. Notice the emphasis on the double expression. Go through, go through. It's repeated, you see. Why? There's nothing superfluous in the Bible. I believe the Holy Ghost has given us the words of Scripture. Every word is pure. Every word is precious. Every word is powerful. And every word is plain. And, and why is it doubled? It's doubled for emphasis. It's, it's doubled so it can stand out. Go through. It's as if it's repeated in case somebody didn't hear the first call. Go through what? Go through the gates. Notice the word gates is in the plural. It's not the gate. That would be one singular, it's plural. The gates is more than one. And of course, you've got to think of the great city of Babylon. In the time that Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians, took over. And in the first year of his reign, he issued a decree to open the gates. And the decree was a call to the Israelites to leave Babylon, go through Go through the gates. Go out of Babylon, commence on a journey, and go all the way to Jerusalem, and go through the gates there. You see, I see here a call to salvation. There's a spiritual picture here of Babylon. Isn't Babylon a type of living in the world? Babylon, mystery Babylon. We think about a city that's destined for destruction. And here's people living in that city of destruction, receiving a call to leave that city, to go through its gates, and to enter into another city. How do they enter into that other city? By going through its gates. And that city, as I've said, is the great city of Jerusalem. In fact, the great city of Jerusalem is a wonderful study in the Bible. I want you to think this morning of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim leaving the city of destruction. And where's he bound for? Oh, young people, you know he's bound for the celestial city. And, and we think of Pilgrim leaving the city of destruction by going through the gates of that city and heading for the gate of true conversion and onwards toward the celestial city. Remember what Matthew chapter 7 and in the verse 13 in the Sermon on the Mount 
that the Lord Jesus made it abundantly clear in Matthew 7 and verse 13, when we think about the application here, these particular words, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. I want to ask the question this morning, it's very personal. The question is this, are you saved today in God's house by the grace of God? Have you a testimony that you're born again of the Holy Spirit? Was there a day and time when you heard the call from King Jesus calling you to repent of your sin and believe the gospel? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Remember what it means to be saved? I was asked this just the other day. What does it mean to be saved, Mr. McLaughlin? It's a Bible word, isn't it? Well, this is what it means to be saved. Saved from sin's penalty. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We're also saved from sin's power. Jesus Christ breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He also saves us from sin's pleasure. In other words, he takes the love of sinning out of our hearts. I was explaining this to our young people on Friday night. In fact, I was sent a, a wee quote just this morning from a friend. And here's the wee quote. Being a Christian doesn't mean we're sinless. But it means we try. That means we persevere to sin less and live according to God's will. See, he takes the love of sinning out of our heart. Someone who professes to be saved will not live willfully in sin. And one day will be saved from sin's presence. Oh, I love that little hymn, don't you? Sweeping through the gates of the new Jerusalem, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Hi. By leaving through the gates of the city of destruction, entering into the gate of true conversion, and having this assurance, one day you'll be at home with the Lord, which is far better. But the question is this, have you obeyed this call to go through the gates? Have you left your city of destruction? Have you entered into the complete deliverance and joyful assurance of God's salvation? You see, at the time of this release, at the time when this edict was passed, at the heart of this decree was a command to go out. Go through the gates. And also at the heart of this decree was a command to go in. Go through, go through the gates. So they're going to one city into another city. Do you know, I learned a long time ago, young people, if you think about a summary of the Christian life, sometimes we like smaller sound bites, if you think of being in Christ, and being in Christ, then you live for Christ, because he has saved you by his grace. How through the strength and power of Christ, not in your own, it's the power of Christ in me, remember, to be with Christ, that one day you'll be like him to the glory of God. That's a summary of the Christian life. Here's the call to salvation. Very quickly, there's a call to separation. Because in these words, go through, go through the gates, the children of Israel were living in Babylon. They were not free men and women. They were captives. They didn't belong to Babylon. They belonged to the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. They were prisoners. They had lost their freedom. The city of Jerusalem was forsaken. The city of Jerusalem had been left desolate. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. 
They had no right to walk out through the gates of the city of Babylon. And if they did, they wouldn't get very far before they'd be stopped by the soldiers. They certainly wouldn't get beyond the border of the territory of Babylon. They were serving a foreign king. They were under his rule. It's not a picture of men and women in their sin. It's not a picture of the whole unbelieving world. Remember John says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. That is in the lap of the wicked one. Individuals are servants of sin and Satan. They're held captive to do his bidding. They're living in the kingdom of darkness. They're alien to the God of heaven. And yet it was these Israelites living in that context. They heard this call. They heard this command. And they had a choice to make. They faced a real challenge. And the challenge to them was to separate from their life in Babylon as prisoners and called to be a life of a pilgrim. They were to go on a journey. They were to leave Babylon, but to enter into another city. This city that was termed forsaken, but one day would be no more termed forsaken. This city that was desolate, but no more would be desolate because it would be built up. It was a call to a life of separation. It was a call to a life of hardship and self-denial. It was a call to a life of work. You know, in the Bible, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, these words, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, for I will receive you. The Christian life involves as pilgrims, a life of separation unto God. A life of separation from sin in the world. A life of separation unto the Lord. It's interesting that Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 52 and verse 11 says this. Depart ye, depart ye. Go out ye from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go out. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. I believe this morning that from the pulpits of our Free Presbyterian Church and beyond, there has to be a call to ecclesiastical separation. We have to separate from apostate churches, separate from apostate and false religion. It's no popular message, but it's a needful and necessary message. Many churches sadly don't have a Bible study, but they love the bowls. Many Churches sadly love to play and entertain, but there's no prayer meeting. There's no spirit of evangelism. And you see, many in Babylon had got used to living in Babylon. And perhaps they had intermarried. Perhaps they were happy and content. Perhaps they didn't want a life of hardship and a life of difficulty and life of self-denial. Far too many of God's people remained in Babylon. There was only 50,000 came out of Babylon with Ezra at that particular time. See, a lot of churches today refuse to talk about sin, refuse to talk about heaven and hell, refuse to talk about repentance. They look upon any talk about sin as being harsh and negative and hypercritical. But we're called by God to preach the whole counsel of God. 
Sadly, many of them don't even believe the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant word of God. They don't tremble under that authority. They don't see themselves as preachers under authority. They would rather twist and pervert the Holy Scriptures. So there has to be a call. And we can preach on that as a separate subject, but there has to be a call to ecclesiastical separation. I'll tell you something else. There has to be a call to personal separation and holiness unto the Lord, a life of self-denial. That's what we're called to be. I was sent some information this week as secretary of the Government and Morals Committee. It had to do with a preacher in America. His name is Alistair Begg. Let me get it right. And he was giving advice to a granny. A granny uh, was asking him for advice about attending a wedding to do with a grandchild. Now you would think, well, what's the problem there? Well, the problem was this, that that grandchild was asking the granny to come to a trans wedding because that grandchild had transitioned from a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy. And this was the advice that... uh, Alistair Begg gave to her. He told her to go. And he told her to buy a gift. And it's caused a big furore in the US. And preachers who would have preached alongside uh, Alistair Begg are now refusing to do so. Some are, of course, saying that uh, those that are responding with criticism to um, Alistair Begg are far too judgmental and far too critical and far too sensitive. And they're not being loving and they're not being tolerant. You know, I've been asked, well, how do I respond to that? How does the church respond to that? Well, the church has to respond to that in this particular way. There's been many born-again Christians who have had to say no to such weddings, whether they're trans weddings or gay weddings. Many who have said no have lost their relationship, they've lost their job, they've lost their scholarship, they've lost their money. You see, that invite is not just an invite to a wedding. Listen to me carefully. It's actually a test. It's a theological test. Will you endorse this wedding by your presence? And once they endorse it by their presence, then they're branded in the minds of those who have observed them coming as being hypocritical, and their testimony and their witness for Jesus Christ is silenced, and it's impacted. And for those that are holding out for a biblical witness unto Christ, well, they're called legalistic monsters. But to me, and I said this to some who contacted me, it's a bridge far too far. Because what's lost in the midst of it is the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. The power of a holy testimony unto the Lord. A power that hates sin. So there's a call to personal separation. And you have to be willing to bear the reproach for Christ. Remember what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13. It says, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Everything that Jesus Christ is for, we should be for. And everything that Jesus Christ is against, we should be against. And we have to be as Christians who are on a pilgrim journey, willing to take a stand for Jesus Christ for truth and righteousness. So there's a command here to be obeyed, a call to salvation, a call to separation. Go through, go through the gates. Notice secondly here, the challenge that is to be observed. 
It says here in the text, if you look at it, prepare ye the way of the people. There is preparation. Cast up, cast up the highway. There's dedication. Gather out the stones. There is sanctification. Lift up a standard for the people. There's certification. You see, this was a tremendous challenge. And the challenge had to be observed in this fourfold way. The exiles in Babylon, well, well, that was not the end of God's people. God had much more planned. They were not to live in a state of depression. How many of God's people are living in a state of depression this morning? And they're they're bound by their struggles and bound by their circumstances. And here's a challenge that is to be observed. In the pilgrim pathway, there must be preparation, there must be dedication, there must be sanctification, and there must be certification. Where was the city of Babylon? The city of Babylon was about 800 miles away from the city of Jerusalem as the crow flies. Babylon today, young people, is in modern-day Iraq. At least the ruins are. And you could fly in an airplane, and it would take you a few hours, I suppose, to come from Baghdad, near to where the ancient city of Babylon was. And you could fly into Tel Aviv, and then you could go on to Jerusalem in a bus. It would certainly take you less than a day, maybe do it in half a day. But back then, and we're going back, remember, 500 years ago, before Christ, travel was not easy. Most of the travel was on foot or by donkey and by camel. And it would take several weeks. And there'd be rough tracks. And there'd be bad terrain. And one of the things that they had to do was prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. There was to be preparation and dedication involving making a road. One of the things that they had to do was make a road where there was no road. And other roads that were there in bad state needed to be repaired. The highway laid waste. Maybe neglected over the years. Other roads had big boulders, maybe the size of a truck or a car. And they needed to be removed. They had fallen from the mountains. The first return, remember, only 50,000 people under Ezra made that journey. Over several weeks. And that involved preparation. It involved dedication. Some of you might remember, I do, the late David Collins. I don't know if any of his relatives are in the house of God. If they are, make themselves known to me. And I used to tease and joke with the late David Collins because he worked for the DOE. And you see, we we sort of tittered and laughed. Well, uh, one man was working and six were watching. I used to say to him, you know, if I flew over Northern Ireland in an aeroplane and looked out and seen two yellow things down in the road, I would think they were either canaries or their DOE men with their DOE coats on. And you see, there's a need for road men. And road men do a vital and a very important work. Do back-breaking work. And, and you think of these people, 50,000 of them, and they face these big boulders on the road, or no road at all. And it's a challenge that they had to become the Lord's road men. There's a big challenge for preparation. And you see, we live in a day when there's little preparation, when there's little dedication, little sanctification, little certification. 
We live in a day when many make light even of faithfully attending the house of God. You don't need to go to church on a Sunday. You can stay at home and you can watch on the television. Well, you can. But it's better being in the house of God among God's people and having fellowship with God's people face to face. And many have stopped attending a faithful Bible-believing church. We live in a day when many make light of faithful biblical authority. It's no longer thus and thus saith the Lord. Man-centered ideas and thoughts have come in. What, what the pastor or the elder thinks. But there's no trembling at the word of God. Many make light of faithful Bible assurance. But this is the life that the Lord has called us to. There has to be a removing of the roadblocks from the road. And sadly in our day, there's very few that are willing to remove the stumbling blocks in the way of many people. Think of the stumbling blocks in the heart and mind of many that are unsaved. People tell them, you don't need to be saved. You're a good person. You, you live a good, clean life. You're honest and upright. Or you can save yourself by your good works. Totally contradict Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, let any man should boast. And of course we've got the stumbling block. Well, you know, but, but there's no hell. We don't believe in that. Oh, there might be a heaven, but, but we don't believe in hell. Hell's what you make it. Hell's here and now. And you see, all of these things are having an impact in the hearts and minds of many. You, you don't have to accept the Bible as the word of God. You think of the falsehood of the ecumenical movement, the charismatic movement. You don't need to go out and evangelize. Totally contradicts Mark 16, verse 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You have an opportunity coming up in this gospel mission to get unsaved in under the sound of the word. I would encourage you to work like beavers to get your unsaved in and, and let them hear the word of God and through the word of God, let them be converted. Let, let the power of the word take um, uh, hold upon their hearts and minds. You think of those big boulders, size of a truck, how would they got them out of the way? Even to this day in the Middle East, if you Google it, the, the big boulders that fall from the mountain have to be blown up and, and blown up with dynamite. You think of the dynamite of God's word, the power of the gospel. Romans 1 verse 16 and 17. Here's a call, a call for preparation, dedication, sanctification, certification. Think of these words, lift up a standard for the people. You see, the standard brings comfort. The, 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 the standard is a sign to God's people. It's a sign of hope. It, it certifies them. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the midst of a storm and you're struggling and you're in difficulty and you're wondering how you're going to cope and how you're going to get through another day, never mind another week. Well, listen to this. There is no storm that God won't carry you through. There's no bridge that God can't help you to cross. There's no battle that God won't help you to let go of. He's much more bigger than anything that you face today. Leave everything in his hands. Embrace the day confidently, knowing that he loves you in Christ, and he takes care of you in Christ, and he has an interest in you. And here's the challenge. We need to learn these lessons. We need to lay hold of them. These people were passing through. They were, they were going from the old life in Babylon and they were to enter into a new life and it involved making a new path. It involved building a highway. It involved removing the hindrances. It involved raising the standard. 
exiled in Babylon was not the end. God had so much more planned. But here's the challenge to be observed. This is what it involved. And there's so much involved in the Christian life. You know, it's not easy being a Christian. It's a wonderful grand life. But there's so much involved. Preparation of heart and mind. Dedication of soul and spirit. It involves sanctification. Saying no to sin. Being strong. And being certified through the hope and power that's in Jesus Christ. One final thing and our time is gone. The comfort that is offered. If we think of these words at the end, lift up a standard for the people. You see, the word standard means an ensign or, or a banner. And it got the color on it. Whatever the color was. And it was lifted up as the people would have marched forward on their pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. And of course the standard for the Christian church today is Jesus Christ in the fullness of his person and work. Not a denomination. Not an individual congregation either carried off Free Presbyterian Church or um, Korean Free Presbyterian Church. The standard is Jesus Christ in the fullness of his person and work. The focus must be in Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. The hymn writer said there's a royal banner given for display. And, and who is that royal banner? It's Christ. And, and it's Christ in the fullness of his person. From the time of his humiliation to his exaltation. See, I believe in the essential deity of Jesus Christ. He's truly God and truly man. The Bible says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I believe in his eternal sonship. I believe in his incarnation, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death. I believe in his bodily resurrection up from the grave. He arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints. I believe in his visible second coming back to this earth. And his feet will be in the Mount of Olives once again. And it will be fulfilled literally. And he'll come to set up his eternal kingdom in Jerusalem. You see, there has to be the raising of the standard. And the raising of the standard brings comfort. But there's also a rally to the standard when the standard's under attack. And I don't know if you've seen photographs from America where a pile of dead bodies have been. And then the American flag is raised on top of those dead bodies. What is that saying? When their standard is attacked, they rally to the cause. And prepared to die, if necessary, for the standard. And that's the picture and of the Christian life. There has to be a raising of the standard, but a rallying to the standard. You have to be prepared to be attacked. You have to be prepared to be a hit. If you're a boxer, that's true. If you're a wrestler, that's true. If you're a soldier, that's true. But the raising of that standard and the rallying to that standard leads to the rousing of the standard because the standard raised speaks of victory. It brings hope. It brings encouragement. And where is our hope? Where is our encouragement? Where is our help? It's in Jesus Christ, the royal standard today. So I would encourage you to focus on him. Don't focus on your circumstances. 
Focus on Christ. Don't focus on your storms and your struggles. Focus on the Savior. Focus on his salvation. Get, get a hold of his power and his ability. And he will strengthen you. And he will help you in this task of preparation, dedication, sanctification, and certification. The comfort that is offered. Lift up the standard. Get sight of the standard. I commend this practical prophecy to you today. Heed this command. Embrace the challenge and receive the comfort. We're going to sing in closing the words of hymn number 500. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. Hymn number 500. Let's stand together as we sing, please. thyself this morning. We pray that thy word will be blessed by the Holy Spirit to the hearts of not only all who heard it in house, but also online. 
And Lord, we pray that through thy word that thou will remind us of the need to heed the call to salvation, save precious souls, and the call to separate unto Christ to the praise of his name. Part us now in your fear and blessing. We pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of thyself and the communion of the Holy Spirit will be upon us both now and evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.